that's one thing that isn't always understood is that just because IFRS adopts a standard or develops a standard, that doesn't mean that it is automatically established as a regulatory standard. These countries, as with anything else, individual countries have got to go through their legal and administrative processes to implement them and make them enforceable within their own boundaries, their own jurisdictions. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and we have a rare treat today because we have a fellow Texas Longhorn. Always adds to the conversation, and today I have with me Lawrence Hyde. Lawrence, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I'm always happy to chat with you. So Lawrence is one of the few people I know who have been in this space for quite some time on the environmental side of things, but he now is one of the true advocates around ESG in the direction of professional commentary. And he's the editor of Practical ESG, which I find to be one of the top sites for day-to-day information and indeed in-depth information around ESG. So we're going to talk about that. Lawrence, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah. So I am 100% environmental and what you might consider traditional sustainability. I started back in the 80s doing environmental compliance work at a law firm. And then, although I'm not a lawyer and and transitioned into technical environmental compliance consulting, and then that moved into non-financial auditing, the environmental compliance auditing management systems, that kind of thing, and kind of Worked my way through in-house environmental affairs and and some traditional risk management work in risk advisory, again, focusing in on environmental risk management and identification through, again, consulting and conflict minerals work as well and responsible sourcing. So that's kind of my circuitous background. But now you are involved in yet another endeavor, and I mentioned it's called Practical ESG. Could you tell us what took you to that editorship, what it is, and really the type of commentary and other information you and Practical ESG bring to the greater ESG and corporate community? Yeah, so there were several things that kind of all came together. One of them was, I mentioned Conflict Minerals and CCR Corp, or the Corporate Council.net used to have annual webcasts about updates on conflict minerals rule. And I was one of their folks that was on that annual panel. So I knew CCR Corp, who is the owner of Practical ESG and the publisher of PracticalESG.com. So I, I knew the folks there. And then I wrote a book on sustainability. And one of the things that that did was got me to realize that I actually do like writing. I probably had never admitted it out loud to myself, but, but I enjoyed writing. And when CCR Corp and CorporateCouncil.net and managing editor Liz Dunshe kind of thought about what was going on in, in their world, and they felt they needed to launch a standalone ESG-focused resource, Liz reached out to me and asked if I would be interested. And so 
that's what happened. And at least so far, they're still tolerating me. Well, they may be tolerating you, but I think the greater compliance and corporate community has, has really embraced you and that has embraced practical ESG, uh, one, because of the regular and daily commentary you bring us, two is, I don't want to say it's daily news, but you certainly keep us abreast of developments. And then you do have some deeper level commentary that's now also available. What would you say has been the response or perhaps the for you any surprises in the response to uh, practical ESG? Well, there have been a number of surprises, all good, I think. We get a tremendous amount of feedback from not only members, but also just what we call subscribers to the blog. It is very, very positive. And I think a lot of that has to do with the frank, candid, and perhaps, again, the practical content analysis that we provide. We try very hard to cut through the fluff and the marketing and what does it really mean? What does it mean to you as a practitioner, whether you're counsel, whether you're chief sustainability officer or, or whatever? What does that mean to you on a daily basis in terms of how you do your job? Because these are very complex issues. And I think we try very hard to focus on that. I think one of the surprises has been that I found that that some of the source documents that are in the public arena that we've been able to find and we've posted online, I found have ended up finding their way onto major media sources. It's back-end linking, which I don't quite understand. I found one out by accident, which with one of the more internationally known media companies that it's not necessary to name, but that to me was quite a surprise and a bit flattering, but that's kind of where I am in that. Lawrence, in addition to your own writing on Practical ESG, you also have commentary from others who have submitted information. Uh, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about some of the commentators you've had on and really the information they brought to people like myself in the greater community. Yeah, we've got a great set of contributors and we continue to get more contributions as well. We've got a fantastic advisory board that helped us kind of formulate practicalesg.com and what direction we should go. And we selected that advisory board to a large extent based on their technical expertise and their seniority in the marketplace. And so because of that, they've also been wonderful sources of contributions. And so we've had a number of fantastic and very in-depth, and again, focusing on practicality, contributions from our advisory board on climate issues, on investor perspectives, on corporate culture management, and how all of that relates to ultimately rolling up to successful ESG programs. So there's that data quality and data validation. And we've got a few more certainly that are in the works right now from other contributors. One of the more, I would say, impactful or maybe shocking contributions came from somebody who I know who is not on our advisory board, but Matt Friedman, who I work with and know through my association with being on the board of a nonprofit called Asset, uh, the Alliance to Stop Slavery and End Trafficking, which was founded by actress Julia Armand. Anyway, Matt wrote an incredibly painful and compelling article on his experiences relative to human trafficking, and that was a fantastic contribution. It's funny you should bring up Matt. I actually interviewed him for another podcast this morning, 
to talk about the P or people in ESG is the topic of his presentation at a conference. He's a great resource and a great friend to not only his community and human trafficking and modern slavery fight, but also our community in ESG. I've always wanted to ask you about the practical, impractical ESG, because you hit on the head. One of my favorite articles that I thought really emphasized the practical was you took statements from investors, major institutional investors, and collated them for us. But you did it in a way which allowed, if a compliance professional was reading it, they could almost use it as a benchmark on things that they needed to think about and publicize within their overall ESG framework. And it just struck me that that was a great example of something collated a lot of information. You put it out there, but you put it out in a way that someone reading it could say, yeah, I can take a look at this and see what we are doing. So I wanted to ask you to say a few words about the practical of Practical ESG. So CCR Corp, again, who is the owner of PracticalESG.com, it has its entire basis on providing practical information to members. So that's what the company is all about. And that's what it started out as and the founding principle 45 years ago. So not to sound like a salesman, but that's really our entire philosophy. Our editorial staff have sat in the seats of our members. So we personally know what our members need to do to function on a day-to-day basis. We also are painfully aware of the tsunami of information that's just flooding everybody's inbox on a daily basis. And the unfortunate majority of it is perhaps not particularly practical. There's a tremendous amount of theoretical information out there. There's a tremendous amount of marketing information to get you to buy something. We just want people to be able to have easy to digest and filtered form to say, our members are saying, and everybody else is saying, I've only got a certain amount of time during the day. I need to know what I need to do and in a prioritized manner in simple to understand terms. And that really is what drives us. One of the things you've written about quite a bit has been the standards, whether those be international standards, whether those be national standards or others. And I wanted to use that as an introduction to the recent SEC proposed rules around climate disclosure risk. I was wondering if you could tell our audience really what the framework the SEC laid out was, and then what have you either seen as the community response or corporate response, and where do you think the SEC proposed rules may go at the end of the comment period? It's really funny that you asked me that right now, because I'm literally drafting a blog that kind of combines both of those things. That's what I've been working on this morning so far. So let's start a little bit with the international standards. And ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is part of the IFRS, the International Standards Body for issuing accounting standards that then must be adopted by individual countries before they become national mandates. ISSB just either last night or early this morning, European time, announced that they have a new working group. And it's a multi-jurisdictional working group of these regulatory agencies in the accounting and the financial standards and securities arenas for a number of countries. 
and the SEC is one of them. So there's this new working group, and the whole purpose of this working group, based on the announcement that's made, is to help the ISSB standards be aligned from the beginning with the existing national frameworks and standards and legal guideposts for guardrails that exist within those different jurisdictions. That process in terms of how those will be aligned, and certainly ISSB and IFRS all talk about, there's frequently discussion about how they're adopted by 140 countries in jurisdictions around the globe. And that is the case, but it's not an automatic thing. And I think that's one thing that isn't always understood is that just because IFRS adopts a standard or develops a standard, that doesn't mean that it is automatically established as a regulatory standard. These countries, as with anything else, individual countries have got to go through their legal and administrative processes to implement them and make them enforceable within their own boundaries, their own jurisdictions. So there are some multiple processes that have to go through. And here in the U.S., the Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, is the one that's responsible for doing that. And that process is called convergence. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens. And I think it's notable that FASB convergence process is its own administrative process with public comment period and due diligence and that kind of thing. But that only begins once the ISSB standard is final. So we're going to have to go through the ISSB standard development until that becomes a final document. And then that's when it will be taken up for consideration by FASB. So it's a two-step process for that standard. Where the SEC may end up with on the rule, again, that was another part of the blog I was just writing. I was just looking over the public comments. I've been kind of tracking them a little bit every few days. And while they don't update the website, SEC doesn't update the website on a daily basis with the comments that are submitted. Right now, there are well over 6,000 public comments that have been submitted. The overwhelming majority of them are form letters or those from concerned citizens and don't have particular substance to them. But what is notable is that most of the industry associations and trade associations that have submitted comments are asking for an extension of time. They're pointing out the complexity and the length of the proposal and saying, we really need more time. A group of states, I believe 21 states, I can't remember the number, but maybe it was 11. They've also asked for a time extension. But here's the interesting dynamic. Certainly, Chair Gensler has made it clear that he wants the final release to be issued before the end of the year. That means time is of the essence. But when you have critical stakeholders who are saying, this is really complex, we really need to take the time to evaluate this rule, we need more time to do that, and that's in the face of SEC's already stated sensitivity to and concern about potential for litigation once a final release has been issued, and they want to make sure that that risk of litigation is minimized which means they want to make sure that they vet things very carefully on the front end as well. So it's an interesting dynamic. And where we end up with that, you know, is anybody's guess, to be real honest with you. The framework listed out three different categories, scope one, scope two, scope three. I was wondering if you could go through those and lay out what you see as the requirements under that proposed framework. Yeah. So there's kind of two elements to it, right? We've got the financial statement element, which is the financial impact of course. And then there's the actual quantified emissions element 
as well. So scope one, your own direct emissions. Those are the emissions that come out of your own smokestack, if you will. That's kind of the easiest way for me to think about it. Those are generated at operating locations. Sometimes you even have offices that may have backup generators. And if you own and operate those offices and those backup generators, that's part of it too. But those are generally the easiest things to measure in terms of direct emissions. You just have to make sure that you identify all of the equipment that is the emissions equipment or the equipment actually emitting the CO2 or any of the other greenhouse gas emissions. Refrigeration equipment is another example that may not always get considered. Everybody focuses on CO2, but there are other greenhouse gases. So the way that that is done is through effectively a spreadsheet called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which was developed by the World Resources Institute, I think in the 90s, I remember when it first came out. And you know, in order to fill out that spreadsheet, you need to have some fairly deep technical knowledge about the equipment, the fuel, fuel use, hours of operation, downtime, this and that. And then you plug these numbers in and it calculates for you based on emissions factors. I think something that not everybody understands is that this isn't something where you go stick a probe in the emission stream and do direct measurements. That doesn't really happen that frequently for greenhouse gas emissions. It's usually through these scientific calculations, and that's what the greenhouse gas protocol does. Scope two emissions are those from the electricity and energy that you purchase from third parties. And again, it's the same kind of things. It generally is done through the greenhouse gas protocol. Either you can get the information from the energy generator, the power generator, and plug it in yourself, or sometimes some of the power generators, the utilities will provide the emissions data for you. But usually it's based on kilowatt hours from your electric meter. And then it, again, understanding what fuel types your utilities use and what equipment, et cetera, et cetera. Scope three, it's a totally different animal. Scope three is the CO2, or the greenhouse gas emissions that are embedded within your supply chain. These are your suppliers. What are the greenhouse gas emissions associated with what your suppliers, what they need and what they use in order to produce the materials and the products and the components that they provide to you and transport them to you? So it's all the embedded CO2 within what your suppliers do specifically for you. This is very complicated. It's something that not every supplier tracks. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of companies that scope one emissions. Their companies don't even track because maybe they're too small and they haven't had the need. One of the curious things about the SEC proposal is it does talk about the EPA's greenhouse gas emissions regulatory scheme. And that is correct. There is one, but it is for very large entities only. It really comes down to power utilities are the only ones regulated. I think maybe there are some cement plants and maybe some pulp and paper mills, but you have to have 25,000 tons per year of CO2 emissions before you're regulated. In contrast, under EPA air permitting standards, this thing called a major source is either 100 tons per year or 250 tons per year of emissions, depending on what the particular pollutant is. So you can see there's a dramatic gap between what EPA considers a major source for permitting and what triggers the greenhouse gas 
reporting rule. So it's very complicated. And the scope three, the suppliers issues, you have to push down the information request through your supply chain and hope you get a response. That's not always the case. Or it's one of the things that intrigued me about this set of proposed rules was what we just touched on with scope three. And if I could draw from my anti-corruption compliance experience, we really saw an increase in compliance when we required suppliers to demonstrate the effectiveness of their compliance programs and the companies they were doing business with. And it, it really struck me as a good way to at least think about a framework. And so I was wondering if, one, if you find that sort of 30,000-foot view persuasive or even useful, and is at least the SEC proposed framework a way for us to discuss these issues in terms of a way everyone can understand, everyone can test, audit, and then report accurately? The proposed release does not itself specify how to collect the scope three data or how to interact with suppliers. So any established framework that you have that already looks at that, I think is a great way to think about it and to start thinking about it. My background in conflict minerals, for instance, I think there's a tremendous amount of learnings from conflict minerals and the whole idea of mapping your supply chain, reaching out to those suppliers and asking them for technical information. And then when that technical information comes back, vetting it internally, I think that's going to be a critical step as well. Because what I learned from Conflict Minerals is you don't always know who in your supplier organization is answering the information requests. Are they knowledgeable enough to really answer it correctly? They may not be doing it intentionally, but I've seen cases where Conflict Minerals requests were being responded to by receptionists who don't understand the technical content of the materials or the products that are being supplied to their customer. So it's not just asking for the information and how do you do that? It's managing the responses, tracking the responses. I mentioned earlier, very small companies are not likely to have this information available and they're not likely to be able to do the calculations either because of cost limitations or expertise limitations. And so one of the things that companies are going to have to think about is, again, and it was the same thing with conflict minerals, what are you going to do if you do not have a 100% supplier response rate? What if you only get 90% or 40% of your suppliers responding to the request for scope three emissions data? What are you going to do about that? It took a decade in conflict minerals for most companies to kind of get comfortable with how they were going to answer that question for themselves. So we're going to go back through that. But to your point here, I think any established framework, established, proven, credible internal framework and process that a company has to reach out to their suppliers, gather information, review and vet it, and then use that information, I think that's going to have to be a starting point. To me, it doesn't matter if it's conflict minerals or AML or whatever that is. I, I think that's going to be a good starting point. Well, it's unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But I was wondering before we leave, if anyone wanted any more information on yourself, on practical ESG, 
or uh, any of the topics you and I have touched on in this podcast, what would be the best place for them to go? The easiest thing to do is just email me directly at lheim at ccrcorp.com, or you can go to practicalesg.com and you can contact me through the website. And I'm just going to re-say, if I didn't say before, if you don't subscribe to Practical ESG, when you finish listening to this podcast, go and do so. I find it to be the best resource i found for all things ESG. Lawrence is a great resource to the entire ESG, but much broader corporate community. And I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, for wearing an orange shirt, and hook them horns. Thanks, Tom. Always happy to chat with you. I appreciate it.